Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Work. From the beginning, work has been a defining aspect of our human existence. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were given the task of tending to the Garden of Eden. After the fall, our very survival became dependent on daily labor. So much so that one could say, to live is to work, and to work is to live. We cannot escape work. This proverb speaks to the fact that blessing often comes to him who is dedicated and diligent in his work. Recognition, promotion, increase of wages often come to those who work, who work hard and are good at what they do. But this is not always the case. Today's proverb, like many of them, is a maxim a general truth about life, but it is not a promise. We see in life that there are many hard and faithful work workers who are overlooked for promotion. Likewise, there are those who undeservedly rise the corporate ladder as a result of their connections or cunning. Working hard is important for success, but success is not always a guarantee. So the question is, why do we work hard or strive to excel in what we do? The Apostle Paul tells us why in his letters to the Colossians. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Let me repeat that last part. You serve the Lord Christ. We should excel at our work because we already stand before a king, the king of all kings. We have already been promoted, brought into the royal court to serve the one enthroned in heaven. This truth gives genuine purpose to our work. It should be the motivation for our diligence in all that we do, no matter how small the task. Whether you're cleaning your room, washing the dishes, waiting tables, fixing a busted water heater, or developing the latest computer software, your work has value because it is done in the service of the Lord. When it comes to working, we are prone to singing in two different ways. First is the obvious sin of laziness or procrastination. But second and not so obvious is the sin we may commit in the midst of working hard or excelling at what we do. When the focus and motivation of our hard work is monetary gain or recognition, we are sinning. When we are driven by the desire for promotion, power, or for more stuff, we are sinning. When the desire for these things causes us to complain, mistreat others, or neglect our other responsibilities, we are sinning. God is our creator. He is our master. He has purchased our lives with his blood. We belong to him and are in his service. In this life, he has given us work to do, the work of taking dominion over his creation, the work of providing for our families and taking care of each other. Let us do this work in a manner that honors him. Let us work hard and excel for the sake of his glory. And when the physical blessings of our hard work come to us, let us enjoy them with gratitude, giving thanks to God for his goodness towards us. 
This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God. little book so far, we've seen the lows, the valleys to which God's people are capable of stooping, in the oppression of the poor, theft from the innocent, believing false prophets and worshiping false gods. This is what God's people has stooped to. And Micah, God's prophet, has proclaimed judgment on Israel and Judah for this. And that was the primary focus of his first oracle in the book of Micah. Today we're wrapping up the second oracle of Micah, which spans chapters 3 through 5. You can follow along in your bullets and outlines I put a little outline there of the second oracle. In chapter 3, he summarized the first oracle and introduced us to the second oracle, which was judgment on Judah. But in the beginning of chapter 4, the second section of the second order oracle, Micah provides us with a vision of future glory, with peace and prosperity in the messianic kingdom. Last week we looked at chapter 4, verse 9, to chapter 5, verse 5, and we saw that God has a plan for his people. How he makes us go through the valleys of suffering and pain so that we might come out on the other end with hope. His metaphor was childbirth. Israel is a woman in labor, and she's laboring for glory. That labor is suffering, and it's painful, but there's a hope and a promise that we can cling to in the dark times. Because God is working his work in our midst. Today's text is chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. And this is the conclusion of the second oracle. And as we shall see, it teaches that the, the Messiah's kingdom prevails. I've titled our message this morning, The Church Militant. Because our text speaks of the Messiah's kingdom. And we live 2,700 years since this prophecy was given. And we know that Jesus Christ is the answer to all of these prophecies. These words are his, and they speak of Jesus and his kingdom. And the church is the remnant of Israel. That God is growing into a mighty nation. And it is the vehicle through which God is establishing his rule on the earth. So hear now the word of God, our text this morning. Micah chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord. 
like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst, thus I will destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. I also included an outline of the text in your bulletins, and you can see there that the text is chiastic in literary structure. And as we go through the text, as I teach through the text, we're going to be looking at it according to the chiastic points. So section A will be about points A and B, verse uh, 5 and verse 15. So se section A is verse uh, 5B, and it corresponds with verse 15, and it continues a theme we were introduced to in last week's message, the theme of the irony of the justice of God. Um, uh, section A, when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces. And then in verse 15, God says, And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. So here we see the arrogance of enemies. The Assyrian here in verse 5 was the enemy, uh, the enemy du jour, or that's French for of the day. It was the enemy of the day. The Assyrian was the enemy that was on the doorstep of Judah, attacking Assyria. It was the weapon in God's hand that was bringing the pro pro prophesied doom against Israel and Judah for their arrogance and their sin against God's chosen people. The leaders of, of, of Judah were, were committing gross heresy and oppressing God's people. And Micah was certainly speaking about Assyria proper, the, the empire of Assyria. But prophecy frequently has layers of meaning. And in the grand scheme of things, Assyria is symbolic of any nation that rises against God's people. Assyria comes into God's land and he treads God's people's palaces. The enemies of God are always arrogant. The enemies of God are always arrogant, and it's because they are God's enemies. In failing to worship and serve the one true God, they come, and they kill, and they take, and they destroy. And they do it in the name of their own gods, whatever they may be whether it's themselves or the, the idols that they worship. But they're not serving the one true God. And it is in the height of their arrogance that God comes and he flips everything on its head. 
And there we see the vengeance of God. It is when the Assyrian or any nation or any enemy of God triumphs that God comes to execute his vengeance. The text says, when the Assyrian comes. And then section B starts, then we will raise against him seven shepherds. That's when God comes to exercise, execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. It is, so that is when it happens, and it happens that way because God's nature is patience and mercy. Because he always waits until sin is mature before he destroys the sinner. Because of that, the justice and vengeance of God are always clear and absolute. When he destroys his enemy, there's no question of whether they deserve it. There's no question of God's rightness. There's no condemnation which will stand against him for destroying his enemies. Because he is not a monster and he is not cruel. Now as you read verse 15, you might say, wait a second, wait a second, let's read verse 14. 15. And I will execute vengeance in, my, in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. And I just said God's not a monster. He's not cruel. But he's attacking those who have not heard. How's that fair? They didn't even hear it. Well, the short answer to that accusation is that's an unfortunate translation. The word translated heard there is better translated, those who haven't listened, or those who haven't obeyed. In fact, that's how most of the other translations of English translate it. God does execute vengeance in anger and fury, but it's on the nations who have not listened. They've heard. They know, but they've refused to obey. And in the height of their arrogance, God destroys them. So an application from this is that we can learn that we must have faith in the goodness of God. We must have faith in God. But it's defined specifically as we must have faith in the goodness of God. Now this is a two-pronged faith. First, we have faith because our God is good. He is just and he is righteous and enemies of God must be punished. They will be punished. Every sin will find its judgment and its just punishment because God is good. Think about it a second. Every wicked man or woman, every false worshiper, Every rebellious person and every oppressor will answer for every deed that they did. For every poor or weak person that they crushed. For every soul that they murdered. For every theft. For every lie. For every cheat. For every lust. And they will answer for it because God is good. If this were not so, God would not be good. Their victims would not have justice. 
Those who suffer would do so without the hope of justice and deliverance from their oppressors. So God is good, therefore every wickedness must be dealt with. Every sin will be paid for. And we know how they are paid for in one of two ways. By the, the person who commits the sin, burning in hell for all eternity. Or by Jesus Christ's blood washing it away. And that sin being nailed to the cross. But there are only two ways that God's justice is served. And if it's nailed to the cross, then the sinner has repented and recognized and confessed of that sin. So the first prong of the faith in the goodness of God is that God is just and he will judge sin. The second prong of the faith in the goodness of God is that God is justified for every act of justice that he carries out. It is a common thing for us to hear in our culture to hear sinners justify themselves by saying that a God who allows sin in the world is either powerless or a monster. That's the argument you'll hear. It's the problem of sin. If there's sin in the world, then God either can't stop it or he's a monster because he didn't stop it. But we need to have faith in the goodness of God, which denies both of these claims. That means that these claims are lies. And we know that they are lies because God's word tells us that they are lies. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the creation itself bears witness of who God is and what we owe to him. All men are without excuse. And they know it in their heart of hearts. They're lying to themselves. We sin not because we have to. We sin because we want to. We desire to. We refuse to hear. We refuse to listen. We refuse to obey. But God has proclaimed it clearly from the foundation of the world. Who he is and what our obedience to him is. So when we say that God is powerless or a monster, we lie about his nature. We lie about him and we defame him because we are arrogant and because we choose to lie to ourselves. But God is good and merciful. He's justified in every act of justice. And he shows this to us time and again and time and again because he is gracious and merciful and good and slow to anger. He shows grace. He gives sunshine and rain on both the just and the unjust. He gives food and water on both the just and the unjust. He reveals himself in the world and in his word so that even sinners, all sinners, when they are finally called to account, they have nobody to blame but themselves. You cannot pass the buck when the God of heaven, no man or woman who suffers the wrath of God can stand with a straight face before the God of heaven, the one who reads our hearts. Nobody can say, stand before him and say, but I didn't know. He says, ha, yes, you did. I see your heart. 
You cannot say, but I don't deserve this. And he says, oh, but yes, you do. It was in your arrogance that I cut you off at your knees. God is justified. God is good, and we need to have faith in that. In part B of our chiasm, verse 5c and verses 10 through 14, we see that God has a method. We see that God has a plan. God's way of actuating his glorious scheme in the kingdom of his Messiah is by providing perfect rule and perfect worship. God's method of making this kingdom come to pass, of executing vengeance on his enemies, of bringing peace on earth, the glorious proclamation of the angels at Christmas, is by providing perfect rule and perfect worship. So we read 5C, perfect rule. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. The number seven in the Bible is a symbolic number of completeness and wholeness. And when it's spoken like this, seven shepherds and eight princely men, eight is a superabundance of God's rule. The Lord has provided us shepherds and princes to rule. And it's all found ultimately in the, 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 the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who rules in heaven and earth. So God's plan to rule his kingdom is through vice regents. He appoints and ordains men to do his work and to accomplish his purposes in his world. And we already found when this happens that it happens when they are needed. Okay, so he says, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. Well, when? Well, when was back in section A, when the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces. Then God's going to provide rulers. So God's going to work through his rulers and his leaders when they are needed. It is when God's enemies arise and tread on us that we, his people, are delivered. It's then that God sends a deliverer. It's when, it's when the Midianites come that God sends Gideon. It's when the Philistines come that God sends David. It's when sin has come to fruition that God sends Jesus Christ. The second half of section B points us to the problem, why we need God to send his rulers when we, were, when we are in distress, verses 10 through 14. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities. You read that in context, and you're like, man, God just got angry at his people. He's just cutting them off. Just after he's talked about the remnant. No, 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 no. Yes, God is cutting all this out. 
He says, I will cut off your horses. I will cut off the cities. I will throw down your strongholds. I'll cut off your sorceries and your soothsayers and carved image. But he's not cutting you off. He's purifying you. It's when God's enemies arise that he sends a deliverer so that there's no faith that we can put in anything but him. The remnant of Jacob is crawling with gross sins. Faith in horses, fortresses, magic, magicians, idols, and false gods. And that sin has fruit. It's ugly. That's central to Micah's prophecy. It's because of all these things that God's going to cut out of there that God is sending calamity upon Judah. That's why the Assyrian is coming. But in that day, God will send rulers and he will purify his people. He will save the remnant. But he saves them into holiness. If God leads, he shepherds, he princes his people into holiness. He delivers them from their oppression and their death. But in the messianic kingdom, he also delivers them from the tyranny of their sin. He eliminates the false rule of false gods. And in application here, we learn the value of submission to God's leaders, confession of our sin, and repentance, turning from it. Submission. God calls us to follow him. Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. And then in the Great Commission, he told his disciples to go out and make more followers of him through them. We are to submit to the lawful authorities that God has placed over us. And look to God for his deliverance and provision, which he provides through faithful shepherds and princely men. When we need it. We don't need to fear, God will deliver us. Assyria is on the doorstep. It's crushing our, it's, it's, they're marching in our palaces. The nations are there. God's enemies, they think they reign. They're arrogant. They're full of themselves. We don't need to fear. We have faith, because God is good. We have faith, therefore we will submit to God's will for our lives, because we trust that he will send his deliverer in his time. So we need Submission to God's faithfulness. And the second thing we need there is we need holiness. And that means confession and repentance. God will cut off any of our excesses and our sins. We're building. I, I read in, in the New Testament passage this morning that we are God's building. And we are building his building. That's our job. But our buildings that we are building are going to be tried by fire. And only what's valuable will last. Only what's durable will last. So like Israel, we may not put our faith in armies. Any, we we, we not put, may not put our faith in fortresses, in sorcery. Or, that means drugs. Don't put your faith in drugs. Don't drown yourself in alcohol. Don't put your faith in soothsayers, you know, motivational speakers. In the latest fad. Don't put your faith in money. 
in sex, in the government, or in any other thing that competes for our loyalty. We are Jesus' people and nobody else's. We serve Him and nobody else. We don't serve ourselves. We don't serve our lusts. That's tyranny. That's the tyranny of sin, and it will bring the destruction of sin. So we must measure ourselves against God's measure, His standard. We must submit ourselves to His shepherds. And one of His primary shepherds is His Word, Jesus Christ, which when we submit ourselves to the Bible, we're submitting ourselves to Him. And when we submit ourselves to the Bible, we learn to see sin for what it is. And wherever we find sin, we must confess and repent and turn to follow God's leader, Jesus Christ. This method is effectual. And so God's plan results in victory. His plan of perfect rule and perfect worship results in victory. In verse 6, we see that the victory of God's shepherd. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. God can deliver us in the direst of circumstances, and his deliverers always destroy God's enemies. Philistines obliterated at the hand of David. Judah, in her sin, obliterated at the hand of the Assyrians. God's sword. That's a twist. But ultimately... Jesus Christ reigns, and he will reign until all enemies are put under his feet. So God's shepherds will have victory. And the remnants of Jacob, which we're going to re- talk about in the last section, they're going to have victory. Verse 9, your hand shall be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. God gives victory. And in application, this means we need to have hope. We've won. If you have faith, we've won. It's when God's people are under attack and in exile that God sustains them, gives them leaders and strength. Our hope is not meager. It's not, it's not pointless. Our strength is not weak. Our God is real. His Holy Spirit is real. His power is real, and it is for us and within us. It's when we are at our weakest, and when we know that we are completely at God's mercy... That when we turn to him in faith and trust him for revelation and deliverance, that he is pleased to show us how great he is, how glorious he is. And it is when we are weakest that he is strongest. It's when we are weakest that we are strongest because he can work in us. Hope is resilient. It gives strength to the bones. Talk to doctors. It's when people are surrounded by hope that they have the greatest chances for recovery. Conversely, it is in despair that the spirit dies and people give up. People die of despair. A healthy person will eventually die of despair. Our hope is real because God gives us these promises of victory. He tells us to trust and to try him. We are to reach out in faith because God will waste the land of his enemies and he will deliver us from our adversaries. Thus we rejoice with Paul in Romans 8. 
We are persuaded that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have hope. At the heart of our chiasm, we see the remnant of Jacob, and we see the church militant. We see how the church works in the world. And the first way it works is in grace and life. The, the church, the remnant of Jacob, brings a message of peace. It brings a healing balm for the miseries of the world. We go out with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. In verse 7, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. Take a moment for the glories of that statement to sink in. We are dew from the Lord and showers on the grass. But here's the real glory of the statement. We aren't on anybody's timeline in the world. See, this grace is like a freight train. This grace is on God's timeline, and He is doing it. It will happen. His plan and His method and His victory tarries for no man is what the text says. Like great, like like dew, like showers that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. Men can't stop it. You can't get in the way of God's grace. So the church, the remnant of Judah, is life. But next we see the power and majesty of the church. Verse 8, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none deliver. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. But at the very same time, he is the lion of Judah. goes like an ox to the slaughter, and when they kill him, they drive the stake through their own head. So because Jesus is the Lion of Judah, his people among the nations have nothing to fear. Because God is, because God exists and Jesus is God, this prophecy is fulfilled. God is almighty. God is all-powerful. His plan is inexorable. And so, because God is and he is for us, we are like Elisha, who was defended by the armies of angels. I'll read from 2 Kings 6, verse 17. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold... The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The armies encamped around the city, and Elisha's servant was like, Oh no, what are we going to do? And Elisha prays to God, his Lord opened his eyes. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha.
In Romans 8, verse 37, Paul says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. In this section, Micah shows us what it is to be the church. Our job is to spread life and to have no fear. That's what it means to love the Lord with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Spread the gospel. Give life. Give grace. Serve sacrificially. And have no fear. God will use that to crush his enemies. There's nothing that can stand against God's messianic kingdom, against the church. The small rock which was cut without hands from Nebuchadnezzar's dream is perpetually becoming the mountain that fills the whole earth. The tiniest of seeds, the mustard seed, is becoming the tree that the birds of the air nest in. The leaven is leavening until the whole lump is leavened. What are we? We are dew and showers. We are wells of living water. We are the hands and feet of the Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus Christ. We bring grace and life. We bring water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, and clothing to the naked. We proclaim liberty to slaves. We proclaim hope to the downtrodden. We proclaim life to the dead. We are God's messengers and his ambassadors and his people. We are the church. And tightly bound to all of this is that we are kings and rulers. God has given us his world. All things we need only ask and be faithful. We need only obey and worship. If we will keep God's word and worship him alone, if we will stand for truth and justice, if we will defend the weak and protect the innocent, if we will not back down from the convictions that God has given to us, if we will do all of this in humility and faith and service to the one true God and to his King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then he will vindicate us and save us and establish us in his peace and in his love. Have no fear, because Jesus is here. God has come, and we are safe in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. nothing more powerful and more awesome or more wonderful than the church being what she is called to be. And we know this because Jesus told us that it would be like this. Jesus came and he did marvelous works and mighty things. But listen to what he tells us in John 14. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, 
because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Paul tells us that Jesus reigns until all his enemies are subdued. And the body of Christ is the church. And that is you. So believe in Jesus Christ and his goodness. Submit to God. Confess your sin and repent of it. Have hope and be the church. Spread life without fear. And God will be with you. He died for you. And he reminds us every week that he is here with us in this meal. So as we partake of him, rejoice. Because Christ's body was broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.